let me mention our speaker this morning and introduce her now, and then she will come up without introduction later. And Professor Marilyn McIntyre is teaching in our English Literature Department. She is, has her Ph.D. from Princeton in Comparative Literature. She has a special interest in medicine and literature, and she serves on a number of editorial boards, the Journal of Medical Humanities and the Journal of Literature and Medicine. She taught at Mills College for 10 years and served as the chairman of the Department of Literature. She enjoys teaching adult education classes in churches uh, with her husband, John, who is an ordained Presbyterian minister and also a professor here at Westmont. And John will also be participating this morning in reading the scriptures. I have uh, had the enjoyment of having both John and Marilyn over to our home for an evening to get to know them and to learn a bit about their journey in Christ and their faith in Christ and their love for learning and their love for students. And uh, I can assure you that both of them uh, have your best interests at heart and, and love what they're doing with you as students. Marilyn was the opening speaker in our banquet for our new incoming uh, first-year students. She was also selected last year as in a rare honor for a first-year professor here at Westmont. She was selected by the senior class to be the baccalaureate speaker, which tells you, tells me at least, that uh, the senior class, even in one year of her teaching, uh, came to appreciate her at a great depth. So Professor McIntyre will be teaching this morning. Let's begin this morning with silence and prepare our minds and hearts. Amen. The reading this morning is Psalm 103 of David. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, 
So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord. O my soul. If we're going to reflect on learning for compassion, we need to start by remembering what the psalmist reminds us, that we are creatures on whom compassion has been poured out, who have been, in the psalm's extravagant words, crowned with kindness and compassion which is to say that in his compassion toward us, God has not just brought us out of the pit, but has gone much further than that to uh, lift us up and make us beautiful and acceptable to him. So when later Paul admonishes the church at Colossae to put on kindness and compassion, he reminds them that their very ability to do that comes from having first received those things freely and beyond their deserving. Carol Hauslander, a writer I like very much, once described a saint as one with hands that will dip into any water. This image struck me in a particular way at the time I first read it because I was in a stage of life when one deals with muddy babies and diaper pails. To love those babies, my hands dipped into some very murky water. I like to think there was some promise of spiritual growth in all that laundry. There's a similar, much more venerable image in Spencer's Fairy Queen when Arthur descends into a dungeon to rescue the Red Cross Knight from filthy imprisonment, as well as from moral degradation. He's so determined to rescue his friend that, quote, neither darkness, foul, nor filthy bands, nor noxious smell his purpose could withhold. Entire affection hateth nicer hands. Complete love, in other words, is not only willing but eager to plunge right into the darkness and murk and mud to get its hands dirty. In both passages, the image of dirty hands offers a key to understanding what compassion is. Compassion, you may already know, comes from the Latin meaning to suffer with, which means something more than sympathizing, feeling for, pitying, or looking upon with goodwill. It means, as these writers suggest, something more like getting down and dirty, kneeling to talk to the crying child in the mud, wiping sores, washing feet, or often simply being willing to look at things from which we would rather avert our gaze, spend time on grubby details or endure tedium, 
Compassion isn't the kindness of the privileged toward the less fortunate. It's action that comes from felt identification with the poor and the suffering. It doesn't say, I feel for you. It says, we're in it together. What affects you affects me, because we're connected. So compassion has something to do with a capacity not only to imagine another's suffering, but to realize how we are connected to it. Now, let me say a word about suffering before we go on. One of the most memorable moments in a class I took on the literature of the Holocaust, taught by a woman who survived several years of imprisonment in Auschwitz, occurred one day when she took her glasses off, she always took her glasses off when she had a point to make, leaned over the podium, gave us a long, hard look, and said, suffering does not necessarily ennoble people. It makes some people bitter, or greedy, or stingy, or brutal. Clearly, suffering also takes some people to pinnacles of human heroism and selfless love. But her point was that suffering in and of itself does not do that. There's no particular goodness or virtue in suffering, only in what God may bring from it when, through suffering itself, he crowns us with love and compassion. Like suffering, learning does not necessarily ennoble people. It makes some people insufferable pedants, intellectual exhibitionists, or elitists. It makes some people nasty, competitive grade grubbers. But learning can be, and suffering is meant to be, a powerful instrument of compassion. If it's not used as such, it can just as easily become an instrument of oppression. In deciding to pursue higher education, you've already begun to take on a large responsibility for exercising power in the world. And no use of power is neutral. It will either serve life or serve death, God or mammon. Your learning will either serve to make you more compassionate or more subtle and effective at being selfish. When you finish your formal education, the scalpel or the keyboard or the pen or the podium that is yours to use will bring with it the power to heal or to kill. We'd all like to think that we use learning for the best ends, but I would venture to guess that any one of us who has learned a skill has also misused it used skills and argument to get our way instead of getting at the truth, used skills and reasoning to rationalize a self-serving position, used quickness and calculation to drive an unfair bargain or protect an unfair advantage. Like any other form of power, learning can only be turned to good ends by the action of grace. As recipients of God's grace, we who have been crowned with the Lord's love and compassion may in turn exercise it. To do that, we go to the place where our work calls us. You go to the chemistry lab or listen to language tapes or to read about imperial Russia or irrational numbers or the wanderings of a white whale. What does all that have to do with becoming more compassionate human beings? How does any of these particular kinds of learning bring us closer to that state of mind and heart that truly takes on others' suffering? That question is worth asking in as specific and hard-edged a way as possible, and I'd like to take the next few minutes to address it by considering how some of the particular skills you're developing and the questions you're learning to ask in these classrooms and labs may increase your capacity for compassion, and to suggest how each of the academic disciplines can train not only the mind, but the imagination and the feelings. We don't talk much about training the imagination and the feelings in higher educational circles. 
There's a heavy emphasis on rational process in American formal education. Some might think not heavy enough. But the ancient Greeks, Euclid, Aristotle, Hippocrates, the very folks who gave us some of the headiest stuff we still read, believed that the function of education was not only to train the intellect, but also, and just as rigorously, the imagination and the feelings. Thus, Greek theater, when they, which they understood to be a tool for education and not just for entertainment, was regarded as an institution designed to educate the feelings by means of catharsis. Literally, as you watched Oedipus do himself in, you were learning to, what to feel and how to feel for and with a character in deep trouble. The point was not just to understand, but to experience what Philoctetes called a terrible compassion, what we might call a gut-wrenching compassion in the moment of dramatic irony as he watched a man march inexorably toward a cruel fate, knowing what would befall him. The unabashed claim that feelings can and should be educated along with the intellect comes from an understanding that they're no good without each other. In the interest of retrieving that understanding, consider with me for a few minutes how various disciplines, even as they are taught today, may serve to train imagination and feeling, as well as intellect, and prepare the ground for seeds of compassion. Let's start with math. John Allen Paulos has written a little book about math skills called Innumeracy that I want to recommend to you for the way it shows why we need to understand certain mathematical functions and ideas estimating, probability, powers of 10, algorithms, statistics, in order to lead a politically astute, morally conscious, and compassionate life. He shows in very concrete terms how a sharply developed quantitative sense can serve to sharpen our moral imaginations. And let me give you an example, just a little example, of how this works. My brother, who teaches math, uses object lessons from time to time to help people imagine, for instance, the magnitude of difference between rich and poor. A one-inch stack of $100 bills, he claims, is about $25,000. A million dollars would be a stack about three feet high. A billion dollars, the amount a single individual just contributed to the UN, is a little over half a mile high. The visual image of the magnitude of distance between rich and poor allows for a kind of reflection on the justice of our economic system that would be much harder without development of the quantitative imagination. The study of statistics may similarly be an aid to compassionate understanding of human suffering. An epidemiologist who collects and interprets the statistical data that reveal the causes and transmission patterns of disease outbreak is in a position to assess its impact on endangered communities and to help design measures for curing the sick and preventing its spread. Social scientists all use statistics to understand patterns in community life, to take some measure of need, to assess the pressures that drive people to violence or to bring to light destructive attitudes and behaviors that can't be changed until they're identified and reframed. History, too, may open avenues of grace for ourselves and compassion for others by bringing us humbly to realize that what we take to be progress often isn't, and that what initially seems alien in the past may teach us a great deal about how human beings have coped with problems at least as pressing as our own, perhaps at times with more grace and imagination. To reflect even on simple historical facts 
like the fact that there was no effective anesthetic until 1846, or that the U.S. government has made over 400 treaties with Indian tribes and broken them all, is necessarily to have to recognize and deal with some uncomfortable feelings about corporate guilt and about the sources and effects of human suffering and put contemporary forms of suffering in a large and complicated perspective. One of the factors that complicates our perspective on human suffering is that it can't be adequately understood apart from some understanding of the disrupted and damaged ecosystems we inhabit. Hence the need for close study of the biological sciences. Until our compassion extends to the earth that has suffered the effects of so much human rapacity and violence, we can't fully understand how deeply and intricately we are connected to one another. By compassion for the earth, I mean a humble acceptance of our intricate interdependencies with non-human life forms and the soil that nurtures them and the ways God has in the gift of this earth crowned us with love and compassion. Paul's image of the mystical body is no mere metaphor. It appropriates an actual biological fact to express in the strongest possible terms how integrally we are also spiritually part of one another. Patterns of human connectedness are the focus of much, much research now going on in family systems theory, by which psychologists and healthcare professionals are coming to understand that disease and dysfunction, to be understood rightly, have to be understood in the context of family and social environments in which they're generated. This kind of study makes it much harder to isolate the physically and mentally ill as though the community didn't necessarily suffer with the suffering individual. Individual healing, we are coming to understand, cannot be fully accomplished without attention to the immediate community that is often, certainly in the case of many families, both the source of suffering and the source of healing. In the arts and literature, the call to compassion is in some ways more direct though no more essential. Artists and writers call our attention to point of view and perspective, reminding us that we have never, even with a so-called omniscient narrator, have an omniscient point of view, and are therefore never in a position to pass final judgment on one another. One of the stories I like most to teach, as some of you know, is the Scarlet Letter. In that story, Hawthorne's shifty narrator tells the story of a woman caught in adultery and publicly punished by a severely judgmental community. The minister who fathered her child lets her bear that punishment alone. The man who married her and then left her alone for many months shows up and pursues a course of subtle revenge on the minister whose secret he discerns. Meantime, the wild and impish child of this illicit union, easily the weirdest child in American fiction, challenges all our sentimental pieties about the innocence of little girls. In the course of the story, we're tricked into making moral judgments about each of these troubled characters, which judgments we are then compelled to reconsider and retract. By the end of the story, unless we are very stubborn and pig-headed readers, we have had to reflect on each of them in terms of his or her pain, and to reflect on the ways the whole community is implicated in their sin. Sin, this book teaches, is systemic. We all participate in it. We create the conditions in which the people among us are driven to desperation. And even fully recognizing individual accountability, we may not, any of us, suppose that we do not share responsibility for the sin and suffering of those in our midst, and so for the healing they require. 
This book, as much as any outside the Bible, has taught me how fundamental to right understanding of our human situation is the command, judge not, that ye be not judged. What stories and paintings do for us is give us eyes to see. By reframing the familiar, they invite us to test and alter our habits of seeing, which so often blind us to what we don't particularly want to see. One of the Dutch painters who seems to me to teach us how to see with compassion is Jan Vermeer. We have the slide up here. His representations of women and men in private moments of work or sleep or preoccupation suggest a grasp of their interiority that seems to draw us into something like reverence. This one, for instance, of a simple, not very attractive peasant girl doing household work seems to sanctify that work and beautify the girl who does it by the quality of attention the painter gives her. This poem written about that painting may suggest some of what I mean when I speak of the painter's compassionate gaze. There is no flattery here. This thick-muscled, broad-bottomed girl has milked cows at dawn and carried sloshing pails hung from a yoke on shoulders broadened to the task. She has kneaded fat mounds of dough, sinking heavy fists deep into voluptuous bread flesh, innocent and sensuous as a child in spring mud. Evenings, she mends and patches the coarse wool of this bodice, smelling her own sweat, sweet like the grass and dung in the barn, or like warm milk fresh from the udder. Her world is grained and gritty, deep-textured, rough-hewn, earth-toned, solid, simple, and crude. Reed and brass and clay, wheat and flax and plaster turned to human use have not come far from the loamy fields where they were mined and gathered. The things she handles are round and square, tough-fibered and strong, familiar as flesh to the touch. The jug rests in her hand like a baby's bottom. She bends to her task like a mother tending her child, hand and eye trained to this work, heart left to its pondering. How like tenderness, this look of complete attention. How like a prayer that blesses these loaves, this milk, round like this belly, full like this breast, given this day daily into her keeping, this handmaid on whom the light falls, haloed in white, hallowed by the gaze that sees her thus, heavy, thick-lipped, weathered and earthbound, blessed and full of grace. The most essential way all our learning may deepen our capacity to identify with, open our hearts to, and feel compassion for others is by disciplining us in habits of deep and prolonged attention, long enough to paint the last detail in a milkmaid's dress, long enough to watch a test tube for the slow transformation that verifies the hypothesis, long enough to find the terms in which to solve a naughty calculus problem or to construct a persuasive argument. Some of you have heard me quote before the words that hung over my typewriter in graduate school and helped me through long hours of study. Attention, deep, sustained, undeviating, is in itself an experience of a very high order.
Attention is a habit of mind that may enable us to see things truly by seeing things through. It is a habit of the heart that consents to stop long enough to see, to dwell on, to ponder, to be with, and to reconsider, not just glance at, judge, and dismiss. In every discipline that trains us in habits of systematic and careful attention, we are invited to develop eyes that see and ears that hear. And as Eugene Peterson put it, to eyes that can see, every bush is a burning bush. The prayer you may know from the movie Godspell, actually written in the 17th century, to see thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, and follow thee more nearly, is a good prayer for the learner. What we're all about in our work here is willing and striving to see. But finally, the seeing will come as a gift, and delight in learning itself and experience of being richly crowned with kindness and compassion. I want to end with some lines from the poet Richard Wilbur that describe the kind of compassionate seeing we're called to in the practice of daily disciplined attention. These are from his poem called The Eye. This section of the poem is a prayer for the compassionate gaze that is not averted from what is ugly, deformed, or unappealing. But, like hands that will dip into any water, consents to see beauty and embrace it in the very midst of sadness and squalor. I'd like to offer this poem as a closing prayer that in our learning here, we may each of us learn to see with a compassionate gaze. If the salesman's head rolls on the seat back of the bus in ugly sleep, his open mouth banjos strung with spittle, Forbid my vision to take itself for a curious angel. Remind me that I am here in body, a passenger, and rumpled. Charge me to see in all bodies the beat of spirit, not merely in the tout en l'air or double pike with layout, but in the strong shouldering gait of the legless man, the calm walk of the blind young woman whose cane touches the curbstone. Let me be touched by the alien hands of love forever, that this eye not be folly's loophole, but giver of due regard. May the God who has crowned us with kindness and compassion and who holds us in hands that will reach into the deepest pit to rescue us, give us eyes that are willing to see. Amen. the beauty and the grace and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and the power and the encouragement and the correction of the Holy Spirit be yours now and forevermore. You're dismissed.